Well, hello, Leah, and thank you for uh, agreeing to participate in this. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. talk uh, about OSINT, we're going to talk about what's your take on it, what are the limits of OSINT according to you, but I want to begin first by a little introduction, if, you, if you'd like, uh, tell us what you do, how you came to that position, and so on. Yeah, of course, so my name is Lea, um, I've been working at Graphica as an analyst and an investigator for three years already, and I specialize on state-sponsored operations as well as online extremism. Um, as of how I got into OSINT, uh, I think it's mainly by chance, uh, in the sense that before um, ending up at Graphica, I was mainly studying uh, ancient languages and uh, foreign trade oh. <laughs> with a, speci- with a spe- uh, specialization on uh, Russia, because I've been learning Russian for like 14 years already. <laughs> Um, but yeah, basically, I got super lucky because I applied to the French Institute of Geopolitics after a bachelor in uh, for international trade. And I didn't put all the pieces together yet uh, for OSINT, which is like, I, sp- I spoke Russian, I learned Python a bit by myself. And so when I applied to the French Institute of Geopolitics, I got super lucky because I was interviewed by two PhDs and Kevin Limonier which I think yeah. is going to be on this podcast at some point as well. And Hopefully. so when they were like, Python, Russian, they were like, oh, you want to work on cyber? Because <laughs> at first I wanted to work on something completely different, which was like some legal stuff regarding uh, the status of South Ossetia as a state. Um, and yeah, from here, I just began working on tech stuff and uh, more like cybersecurity uh, oriented uh, analysis and so I did my first year of uh, master thesis on cybersecurity in Georgia and the second uh, on cybersecurity in Estonia. And straight after I graduated, I began at Graphica. So when you say uh, cybersecurity, you, are you talking about like uh, specific malware programming and so on, or is it like a wider array like this, this information operation online? Uh, yeah, no. Uh, so when I did, when I was studying, it was more like how is cybersecurity organized uh, at the state level and at a civil level in the countries I was studying. But now I only work in things related to disinformation. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine uh, Estonia was a very good place to study that since they had some yeah. problems. <laughs> uh, yeah, some serious problems. What was it? The, the grid that was attacked or something like this? Sorry? The electrical grid was attacked, right, in Estonia? Uh, yeah, wow. like the whole system, basically, oh, they got yeah. ghost and uh, it was very interesting as well because on one side it was, the, they got like completely ghost everywhere on internet, uh, states, websites and so on and so forth. And on the other side, you had like a whole disinformation campaign that actually resembles some things we're seeing about Ukraine right now happening. Um, about, uh, yeah, the uh, like ethnic Estonians are organizing the genocide of Russian populations in Estonia and so forth, uh, which led to huge riots. I mean, huge at an Estonian level, of course, riots in Tallinn in 2007, uh, because, uh, yeah, bec- uh, at the same time, the cyber attacks happened. And is it this, uh, this way of, uh, Destabilizing a country, sort of attacking a country, having multiple layers, you know, like uh, having the like the attacks on the grid, then having uh, this uh, disinformation campaigns as well. Is it something we've seen in other places? So maybe in Ukraine as well, or is it something um, mainly different in Estonia? The one in Estonia was the first one of such a huge um, scale we've seen because uh, in 2007, internet was not what it is today. But obviously, like this is something we're we're more uh, keen to see happening today. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so, okay. So uh, you said you were uh, mapping the internet uh, at Graphica. So can you tell us a little bit what that's about? Okay, so we are mainly mapping social media platforms and, as I said, social media conversations. So it means that 
we're going to use like public data surrounding, like for instance, the use of one hashtag or people mentioning a total account. Um, and from here, we're going to call for the data and then the data is going to go through uh, different algorithms. And in the end, we just end up with a clear map on which most of the time, like communities appear very distinctly. And then through other, um, our user interface, we can navigate those maps, which means we can see like who used what hashtags and who basically who is talking about what. And this is actually really interesting because um, that's first how I got into investigation, actually, because at first I was just an analyst. And as I said, through maps, we can find very good lead for investigations, be it uh, coordinated um, behavior around a certain hashtag or targeted harassment and so on and so forth. Um, and that's how I began basically like digging on things. And we also do public reports, uh, public and uh, independent analysis for Facebook takedown uh, take sets. So we're just going to dig on the assets they're going to take down. And then we publish a report for, about what we're seeing and so on and so forth. And so those reports, for instance, very often call for OSINT. Which means that basically, as I said, yeah, my work is just OSINT all the time. <laughs> I mean, most of the time, because um, how I use it is it really depends. And that's what I really like about this job. We have we, we work on so many different topics at Graphica, and it means that for every topic, we're going to have to think through and decide basically which OSINT techniques would be the best to use in order to be able to go further on the topic and find more stuff on the assets we are investigating or the narrative we are tracking and who is behind it and so on and so forth. Um, to give you like some examples, uh, I'm going to talk about the last report we, decided, we we published. It was this week, so we are first week, second week of April, I think, <laughs> something like this. <laughs> um, so it was about the um, uh, Brazilian net network that was using uh, fake accounts and fake uh, NGO accounts to spread content um, about environment, about uh, nature in Brazil, preservation of nature. Uh, but that was also posting like um, anti-Bolsonaro content, mainly criticizing uh, the president for his handling of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, and from here, Facebook, like part of the takedown was that uh, it like the set was supposed to be led by people affiliated with the uh, Brazilian military. Mm. And we had the name of two of those people, which obviously I'm not going to disclose now. But the, the main um, goal with this was first to see if these people were still affiliated with the um, Brazilian military. And second, if they were, if it was something they were doing them just themselves or coming from higher up. And so this is why social media is a blessing, but also a curse, in my opinion. Uh, from here, we basically use social media OSINT in order to retrieve as much information as we could about these people. Uh, the first thing was that they had uh, military pictures on their Facebook accounts. Um, so that, you know, like them in, um, uniforms. Yeah. yeah. The thing is that those pictures were quite old. And so main, yeah, basically how do we find whether they're still active military personnel or not? And so from here, we began investigating, uh, the accounts of their relatives that are also on Facebook. And it turns out that the names those, uh, people were displaying on their Facebook pages was not their full name. How did we find this? Because they had like either a mom or an uncle or a great uncle or someone from their family naming them with their full name uh, on their social media pages. And those um, posts in where they were mentioned with their full name were not private. And mm. that's why privacy matters a lot on social media. <laughs> um, and from here, we are able to go search uh, Brazilian military records to get um, 
the identification number of those people, but also uh, we were able to retrace their whole career um, um, within the Brazilian military. So which rank they were uh, at the time they posted the picture, but also when they began being part of the military, where they trained, what brigade they were part of. And most of all, like, yeah, we were able basically to do a chronology of where they were at what time in the military. And we were able to find records of them being part of the military until December 2021, just by basically like browsing uh, military data available publicly on Brazilian websites. Oh, okay. So that was uh, a very nice one. But on the other hand, we also have the um, other like usage. For instance, um, I've been working pretty much a lot, <laughs> let's say, on um, Russian operations and those are my favorite to work on because usually they're very insightful and this is not just about like the operation in itself it's how it is uh, imbricated in the chronology of Russian operations because what we see is that if you take Russian operation from like 2016 to today there is like kind of, of an evolution going on in the process in the process and in how those operations are led, how they present themselves and so on. Like if you look at Russian operations today, um, especially the ones led by the IRA, because uh, I've been mostly working on the IRA like for the past three years. Um, maybe, sorry to interrupt you, maybe we just want to do like a little parenthesis to explain to people what the uh, IRA is and why it has no connection with the Irish in that specific case. No, this is not the Irish. <laughs> this is the Internet Research Agency. So this is uh, basically um, an, an organization led by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is uh, someone related to Vladimir Putin and who has been uh, accused of um, managing troll farms. Uh, first in Russia and then across the world to launch disinformation and state operation campaigns uh, for Russia. So related as in linked or related as in member of his family? Uh, no, not member of the family. He's called like Putin's chef. Oh, shit. Hold on. Uh, I won't explain lengthly why, but yeah, he's like quite close to Putin. So yeah, and we've been working on those operations first. First, it was the, I mean, I wasn't that graphic at this point, obviously, but uh, other people did extremely good job on the topic. The troll farms in St. Petersburg uh, targeting the um, US elections uh, and all the fake uh, content that has been produced and aimed at communities in order to sow distrust and to stir up um, social issues between Americans. And what we've seen more recently when we look at the IRA, I'm sorry, I will always end up talking about the IRA because that's so that's what I... No, please do, that's interesting. <laughs> um, so what we've been seeing is that there is uh, an actual like evolution on how they're working. Because if you look at all the previous operations, as I said, you see an evolution. And how is this evolution translating? is that instead of seeing them use, um, you know, bots and fake accounts and stuff like that, we see them more and more use unwitting people and enrolling them to work for them. Mm. So you have like this organization, for instance, uh, I know you wanted to talk about the Ghana report, mm. the troll farm in Ghana. And this was basically like one fake NGO and they were hiring people to produce content. Um, but those people didn't know who they were working for. And this is something we've seen as well uh, with two of the last uh, IRA operations we've been working on uh, at Graphica. So the Peace Data one and the um, NABC one. Those ones were particularly interesting because the first one, as I said, Peace Data was targeting the American left and NABC was targeting the American far right. And what both of this, these organizations did. They had their website, they had social media presence, but also they had um, a bunch of fake journalists whose role was to recruit real people, like real writers and journalists, in order to write for those outlets that are fake outlets, of course. Um, 
without them basically knowing that they're working for Russians. Okay, but then where would it be published if the outlets are fake? Ah, they had their website. Ah, okay. They had their own websites, and um, from here, yeah, it was just uh, the some of the fake uh, journalists were just reposting the stuff on social media as well. Okay, okay. You have like this kind of, yeah, this is basically like, now I, f I feel like the IRA operations mainly rely on unwitting people working for them instead of them doing the work. Like we could have seen that happen in the US 20, uh, 29, uh, 2016 uh, election. But it was also true in the 2016 election where they had like uh, real activists working for them, but unwittingly and organizing protests and stuff like this. Well, it's interesting. And so what, uh, how do you analyze that slide between, oh, I prefer to use bots because they are cheaper to maneuver, easier to coordinate versus uh, using real people that may or may not know they're working for you? Uh, so from, uh, in my perspective, this is um, mostly like a credibility thing. Yeah. Because uh, if you take NABC, so the Russian operation that was targeting um, the American far right, um, you could see like miles away that they were not Americans writing because they were not writing in a native English. And so even like on far right websites and forums, people were trolling them like, oh, lol, the Russians are here. <laughs> Turns out it was... They were right, <laughs> um, but also, yeah, it's uh, g getting credibility because it's always uh, building up personas as well, take time. Sometimes it takes effort as well, especially if you want to go as a journalist. So I assume that's why you'd rather pay someone to do it okay. because they already exist and they're real and maybe they have a history as well uh, about writing about some topics and so on. And they already have like a following as well. So everybody wins. <laughs> in a way. Okay. And you, you were talking about uh, state operation. So my question is, how do you how do you recognize that? And how do you look for it? How do you see a post? And how, how are you like, oh, well, that seems a little bit uh, untrue and not organic? That's the two million euros question. <laughs> uh, honestly, most of the time we get tipped off by either journalists or um, social media platforms because they have, especially in the case of social media platforms, they have all the um, technical data behind behind the operations. So things that we wouldn't be able to find ourselves. However, if you look at how to find those, sometimes they're quite bad at cancelling their um, traces. Yeah. Um, and that's how we ended up finding uh, uh, the whole uh, Russian network in central in the Central African Republic that was fighting with French trolls, uh, apparently led by the the French military. Um, oh well. Because, yeah, no, it's actually a very funny story. And someone, uh, not at Grafica, looked at, at um, uh, NA the NABC website had this banner with the name of the website, and someone thought about checking the EXIF data of this banner and it turned out that in the um, one line of the exit uh, data it was mentioned like Centre Africain Info yeah and so we just went to search for Centre Africain Info through, uh, on Facebook and it turned out it was a French speaking pro Russian uh, Facebook page that was targeting central Africans and from here, we were like, okay, what do we do with that? We did some more digging. We find we found, sorry, a second badge affiliated to this one, which was called Les Oiseaux de Centrafrique, so the birds of uh, the Central African Republic. And from here, we were able to find the person who was behind this. And a couple of months after, um, we, we got like this network that wasn't only like our work, because we didn't work alone on this. And from here, uh, I think it was uh, when we publish, uh, when, when, uh, because this is part of the takedown as well, Facebook sent us a list of those uh, suspected pages. And they also sent us like this uh, French counterpart that we noticed because they were basically fighting in comments between pro-French pro trolls and pro-Russian trolls. 
about the presence of France in the Central African Republic and the heritage of colonialism and stuff like those kind of topics. And so, yeah, we ended up having like this massive operations where it was basically two state sponsored operations fighting one another. And this was legit like fascinating to look at. <laughs> it must be. I mean, that's certainly one way to fight uh, people trying to gain influence in a region is to organize your own influence operation, I guess. Yeah, this is uh, uh, actually, yeah, this is an interesting topic as well. I think the ethics <laughs> behind this, because I personally don't think that the French military should do that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's a whole question. But yeah, sorry, I drifted away from the original question. <laughs> oh, please, please, please do anytime, especially if it's to like talk about little anecdotes or uh, investigation you had that were particularly interesting, please do anytime. Oh yeah, I, I mean, it's difficult like to answer those very broad questions because I find like most of the things we're doing like extremely cool and extremely fascinating and so yeah i tend to get a bit carried away obviously but yeah um use of osint yeah we do also sometimes like that, that's something i'm quite new at and that is not related to russian operations mm. yet um but <laughs> uh recently i've been doing some uh corporate and financial investigation so oh, looking nice. into seemingly independent uh, media outlets or companies and to see like if they had any state sponsored ties and so on this is something uh, that we see for instance on the chinese side okay. like investigating uh, outlets that are maybe maybe not sponsored by the chinese government and this is also like because i think uh, one bias I can have towards OSINT is that I mostly use social media OSINT. So I tend sometimes to forget that there is like a whole new universe around it. Uh, not new, but like a whole other universe around it, which is like geolocation, um, satellite data, and all of this, which I am not like, I'm trying to use them from time to time, but I don't use them like systematically. And yeah, financial investigation and corporate uh, investigation has been like part of my favorites recently because this is just like basically going from just one name and then trying to get everything that revolves around it and that's quite interesting but um we i've also like at least uh not really recently i'm completely lost with time but we've also been using geolocation um for one russian um suspected state-sponsored operation, which was um, actually another investigation that was derivated from the NABC investigation, because um, even though Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn took down their fake authors, uh, they were also active on Altec platforms, so Gab, Parler, and some forums. The and obviously, they didn't delete them, because <laughs> obvious reasons. <laughs> And um, from here, we noticed that those guys were still active on Gab and Parler, and they all of a sudden began spreading memes that we weren't able to pinpoint anywhere else on the internet. And so we verified whether it was true or not, if it was something that they stole somewhere else from the internet or not, or if it was content they were like deliberately creating and spending time on in order to continue influence the, um, the American politics. And the same accounts one day posted, and this is when we talk about the toilet paper story on Times Square. Um, they began posting this set of pictures of a guy that was distributing um, toilet paper rolls stamped with Joe Biden's face on Times Square. Hmm. And same, those pictures didn't, like, they, they didn't pop anywhere else on the internet apart from those profiles. So from here, we obviously use, like, geolocation to see where it was taken. So it was, uh, I think it was ABC in front of the ABC studios or something like this on Times Square. Pinpoint the time it was taken, uh, the day it was taken, and so on. So this is just, like, basic geolocation OSINT. 
And from here, we also, it's going to sound like uh, I'm a stalker, but <laughs> isn't Toxin a bit part of it? I don't know. A lot of it is just looking yes. at a lot of Facebook profiles. Yeah. Doing a job in one world, I'm a stalker. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the basis of it, to be fair, a lot of it, yeah. But, um, and yeah, from here, we try to find the man that was on the picture and also the person who took the pictures. And it turned out that the first version of the report we published, we didn't find the job ads for uh, the distribution of toilet paper on Times Square. But then we got tipped off by someone on uh, Twitter that they found a job ad that could match the operation. Okay. And from here, we were able to find the photographer. And th this is for me when you hit the limit of OSINT. And that's why I think last time we had this conversation when we met, you, at least in our case at Graphica, it's very often that we end up kind of hitting a wall in the end of an, uh, of an investigation just because, well, we have all this data. What do we do with it? If we want to take it further, we need to get in touch with people. Yeah. And from the moment you have to get in touch with someone, this is not really, this, this is not OSINT anymore. Yeah. This is just like real life intel. And yeah, we were able to get basically the, the identity of this person. We got in touch with him, but it stopped here because that's, we are not the law enforcement. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's something I also sometimes run into. Like, you know, I, I see someone selling uh, QR codes to verify your COVID passport on the, the dark web. And then it's like, oh, uh, add me on Snap, uh, maybe with this username. But Snapchat is built in such a way that you're going to get the, the bitmojis, like the, the representation of that person. But then how do you go further? Uh, how do you get more information? If you're not law enforcement, that's going to be very difficult. Yeah, for me, this is like, um, th that's why I see OSINT more like a tool instead of a finality in itself. It's just like something that will allow you to then be able to go further if you want to in real life, especially when you're investigating in individuals. But as I said, we're not law enforcement. And from here, it really like raise, raises the question of what are the boundaries someone wants to establish when doing uh, and working on an investigation. Because um, th this is also part of OPSEC in a way for me, because obviously I'm not going to go browse like neo-Nazi communities or because I work on extremism a lot as well. You know, when you work on uh, conspiracy communities, uh, I'm not going to go as Lea with my profile pictures yeah. because uh, there are inherent risks to investigating those communities and not only those ones in general like all communities can represent a risk to an extent if you're going as yourself and be like hey look that's me um so obviously we're using fake accounts or sock puppets um yeah. but this is uh to me like that has to do with in general like the ethics of uh OSINT because um first question is like you're lying is that you're lying about your identity so first is that okay and secondly is um how far do you want to go with this fake identity my red line for instance is in the interacting directly with someone like if i have to interact with someone like actually talk to someone under the fake identity in my investigation, then that's the end of my investigation. This is not someone so something I want to do myself. Um, but it's it's very nice on paper, but it turns out that more and more like the communities and the groups we're investigating are operating on closed uh, discussion spaces, be it on Discord or on Telegram. This is something that, for instance, um, we had to do when we worked on our VV report. Uh, for a bit of context, the VV is an anti-vax movement that was launching um, harassment campaigns uh, online against uh, pro-vax politicians, media, and um, medical staff, um, mm -hmm. basically treating them like insulting them of being Nazis and stuff like that. And they were just like swarming their posts like it was 
600, 700 comments in the span of a couple of minutes. And it turns out that the VVs were coordinating on closed Telegram channels that were very, very hierarchized. You had like this basic open channel uh, that was just presenting the movement and giving the links to the other groups. But if you wanted to be part of the movement and so be part of the operations, you had first to enter another um, group on Telegram that was called like the Path of the Warrior or something like this, okay. uh, where basically you had to watch and you had to read and listen to like one in 120 minutes of documentation or something like this. It was actually like massive in like considering the the yeah. it was it was massive like just reading basically what are the what what are the beliefs of this group how they organize fighting techniques like reverse psychology and it it was like a lot it sounds like a cult <laughs> what was there like a charismatic leader somewhere or no no it, it was that was the whole thing it was a completely like decentralized movement as well oh, wow. like leaderless actually the french police arrested like eight admins later on because three politicians uh, sued them for targeted harassment but yeah it, it was also a very leaderless movement uh, it originates like from italy but it spread to france germany italy brazil and the uk if i'm not mistaken okay. maybe it even grew more since the moment like since we did our investigation but i don't know um and yeah basically like in order to actually be included in the investi like not investigation in the um, in the, group, in the community? No, not the like in the oper operation. Yeah. Uh, you had to read all this documentation, and then you had to get in touch with an admin and answer four questions, three by the like in a writing format, and one in an audio message. And this is um, we managed to know that because we found someone on Twitter who actually like went through the process. Gosh. But for me, this is definitely the red line, because uh, I did not want to basically cheat someone on my uh, identity. And this is, but this is a, pro a problem that is growing very fast, especially with like big platforms, deplatforming extremist and conspiratorial groups. They move to more uh, isolated. Uh, spaces that are often private and that you need to have like an actual pseudonym or an account to enter and that poses a lot of questions for the future of investigation and investigating those communities as well mm. because as i said i don't want to mislead someone on my identity like at least on direct discussion but I think, yeah, it's becoming just more and more difficult to know where to draw the line, especially when those are small communities, because like, even if you have a small, like a fake account, if you decide to enter like, I don't know, an extremist groups on Discord that has like 50, 60 members, you're gonna get caught. Or at least yeah. they're gonna be like, hey, who are you? So yeah, this is like also, that's a, something that I, uh, this is a question and an issue I find in general really interesting, like what are the ethics of OSINs and when do you have, and this is obviously something that is going to change for everybody, like to each one, their own uh, limits in OSINs. No, that's a good point. And I, that's something I, well, I, I've never obviously done such investigative work and spent like two months studying like a specific movement but i know some people do and i know the crunchiest info the the most interesting communities are the one behind uh, closed doors it's the same for for example i'm thinking about some forums in on the darknet carding mm -hmm. forum for example where you have to deposit a certain amount of cryptocurrency to be able to enter so people know that you're serious mm -hmm. uh, so people know that you're invested in it and that you are in it, not just to study them or get some information, but to actually do business. And that's mm -hmm. like lying is one thing, but actually providing bitcoins to cyber criminals just in order to study them and gain information, that's a whole other ballpark. But I, yeah. I do understand not wanting to lie. Um, 
No, yeah, definitely. And also, like you, you just mentioned like darknet forums that raises another ethical point uh, yeah. on the work we're doing, which is like, since OSINT is supposed to be open source, what do we do of the data that we have to pay for in investigations? Like mm. we're talking about databases, about like hacking leak data and stuff like this that are on sale, for instance, on the darknet or on some forum hacker on some hacker forums and stuff like this. And I know that some organizations use it. Uh, we don't at Graphica. We work only on public data. But this is also like a super interesting and important point to raise uh, when we're talking about OSINT. Where does this gray data falls? Because this is invaluable data, but from the moment you have to pay for it, is it still part of OSINT or not? This is just like, it's a very difficult question. I have obviously no answer for it, but this is a question I ask myself a lot as well. That's a good point, and that's actually getting even more complicated when you think about the fact that, okay, so when somebody just comes with a database, like, oh, that's very exciting, guys, I'm going to sell you a database for $10,000, something. But in three years, that database is going to be all over the net, and everybody's mm -hmm. going to be able to access it freely. So then, does the status change? Like, is it just when it comes out, you have to pay 10 case for it, not OSINT, and then three years after? It is. Um, that's a difficult one. The, the other problem is that how do you know you can trust these exactly. uh, these things? How do you know they haven't been doctored? Like for example, I'm to, uh, I'm talking about the the list of FSB agent that uh, has been what leaked by anonymous and such. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you know this hasn't been doctored? How do you know uh, uh, gmail.com hasn't been added to that? Uh, well. You don't basically. You you can't know, um, but and something I found was insightful. Uh, and another person talking about OSINT in French, Hervé Le Toque, was saying the fact that you don't have to take everything uh, in an investigation as a sacred proof. You're never going to have the proof, the absolute thing that is going to hold all of your case together. But you can use um, this great data as something to help you direct your investigation. So that's going to help you search in the right direction. And that's also going to be one proof, not absolute, not completely true, because maybe it has been doctored, that is going to pile up on different layers on other proof that go into the same direction. So that's that's maybe the beginning of an answer for that particular mm -hmm. status. Um, yeah, that's have, uh, a super interesting question. And uh, I think like yeah, it's not something that we can give an answer to, unfortunately. <laughs> But yeah. I mean, yeah, so. some some people already did give an answer because it is illegal to use them in different countries, depending on the countries you are. So, yeah, of course. Mm. Also, but something then... to look out for. Yeah. Okay, so um, you mentioned at the beginning that you studied uh, Russia and Russian language for quite some time. You said fourteen years, I believe. So, yeah. my question is: studying uh, all of what. Russia has been alleged and has been accused of doing with influence operations so on. How has it has your job influenced your vision of Russia and your relation with this country? Mm, I have a very difficult relationship with Russia, I'd say. So I've been studying Russia like for a long time, but um, the fact that I'm working so much on Russian topics, especially like the IRA and Russian operations in general, Russian disinformation. Um, it makes it a bit difficult, like, not that I want to go back there, like, this is legit a question of the past now, especially since uh, in 2015, I was working in Ukraine, in a Ukrainian NGO called uh, Center Romadanskich Swobod, which is like the Center for Civil liberties in English, I think, which was basically investigating uh, war crimes in Donbass, because at this time the war was only located in Donbass. Um, so those, like, I'm pretty sure if I wanted to go back to Russia, I could, like 99% chances that everything would go well. However, there's still this, like, 1% chance that something bad could happen. So. This was a problem before, but regarding the situation, absolutely not anymore. I 
as I said, like going back to Russia is a question of the past, but in general, like the war kind of made me question like why Russia and why I spend so much time learning this language, but it's still a, you know, a useful language to have. And yeah, this is just like a language I speak fluently and I, I'm a bit like conflicted about it right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't really relate to the whole uh, learning Russia, Russian thing, because I wish I knew Russian. That would be very useful to me in my investigation. Fortunately, I don't. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I can only imagine the situation you must be in right now. Yeah. So let's continue on the uh, war in Ukraine right now. Uh, Disinformation-wise, since you're a specialist on uh, coordinated operation, uh, what's your what's your take on what's happening right now? Is there anything that is worth mentioning around that? Um, I think uh, I won't dig on politics because it's not my role, and some yeah. people, like some specialists and researchers on Twitter, do it would do it like a million times better than me. Um, however, I have to, yeah the the whole disinformation ecosystem that is being mobilized right now on the Russian side is extremely, extremely interesting from my perspective. And it shows as well like a kind of evolution on how Russia is both spreading and promoting, let's say, disinformation. Because um, especially in Europe, I think, since RT and Sputnik got uh, banned, yeah. It's really interesting to see that uh, now most of the propaganda we're seeing, the pro-Russian propaganda about the war in Ukraine we're seeing, is going to be channeled through pro-Russian influencers and also through official uh, Russian accounts. Like, for instance, in France, the Russian, uh, the Russian embassy in France account on Twitter is extremely, extremely active and has been involved in spreading disinformation about um, the massacre in Buchka being supposedly a Hollywoodian um, <sighs> movie and things like this. And this is a very interesting like paradigm how they're using uh, their official accounts now to do this. And what we're seeing as well is that even though Russia was first um, completely like negating anything that was happening in Ukraine uh, to Russian audiences, like in Russia, mm -hmm. now they kind of changed the way they're doing it. And instead of not showing anything, they show everything. They have to because those images are or and videos are still on social on, on social media, no matter what they do. So what they do is that instead of saying, yeah, no, nothing is happening, or saying, oh my god, it's the Ukrainians, we are not doing anything. They take those images and footages, and they use it to label everything as disinformation made by the West to destabilize Russia and to blame Russia. And this is quite interesting. I think this is something that changed like over the last couple of weeks, at least from what we've seen at Grafica. And yeah, we've we've also seen like a lot of, the, of what's really interesting as well is that narrative-wise, a lot of things haven't changed because, for instance, if you look at the narratives, the all the disinformation about the um, bio labs in Ukraine, the genocide of yeah. Russian populations in Donbas, this is things that have been online for years and years and years, and those were peddled, like especially like the genocide narrative was peddled mm -hmm. by Russian official, uh, officials. So this is something that was basically... It's been here for a while, and it's the same for the biolab narrative. Like, obviously, it has evolved, but this is a narrative that we've seen online since at, lean, at least sorry, 2017, and that has been uh, tied to potential pro-Russian operations. Okay. as well as uh, pro-Russian disinformation websites. And one of the central nodes at some point in this conspiracy theory was uh, South Front, which is suspected to be a Russian operation as well. We're seeing, uh, most of the narratives we're seeing right now are not particularly new. Of course, they are adapted to the situations as uh, things emerge, for instance, like all the massacre, the executions and stuff like that that are supposedly staged to 
be like uh, movie productions uh, by the Ukrainians and the West, but also all the thing about, yeah, it's just things that are I've been here for a yeah. while. That's actually something I was, I, I don't know if you remember, but uh, some time ago, before the, one, the, the war even began, there was like the, the official, official Twitter account of Ukraine sharing memes about Russia and Ukraine. And this got a lot of attention, uh, I mean, for the Ukraine Twitter account, Ukrainian Twitter account. And I thought it was pretty interesting. But then Russia, as you said, starting started to do the same and uh, pedal propaganda for their own, um, not only state media, but their um, official Twitter accounts, like the official Twitter account of uh, embassies were tweeting that and also the foreign ministry of defense, these kind of things. So that's something interesting. But uh, the thing I want to talk to you about is the shift between people and conspiracies, conspiracists that were very focused on uh, COVID, like even two, three months ago, and since the beginning of the war, did a complete 180 and are now Ukraine uh, specialist and geopolitical specialist. Why? Why? I, I don't know if that's in your attribution. I'm just uh, grabbing you since I have the opportunity, you know, to ask the question to specialist. Why did they pivot so quickly? Um, I think it, uh, it happened. Uh, it is a phenomenon we've seen as well at Grafica. Uh, and I think it's definitely a phenomenon that has to do with the mistrust in both the media and um, governmental institutions. Because um, something that I think is often not mentioned when we're talking, for instance, about conspiracy theorists or about anti-vax movements, for instance, like COVID skeptic and so on, some of them are not like conspiratorial at the core, they're conspiratorial, um, how would you say that, conspiratorial um, for the occasion, in a way. Okay. And this is something we've seen a lot, for instance, with um, COVID skeptic uh, conspiratorial communities. Part of it, of course, is like the historical, traditional, strong core anti-vax community, which has been opposed to vaccines like for years and years and years and years with, with their own influencers and so on. However, with the COVID vaccine, we've seen the emergence of like a circumstantial anti-vax community. And sometimes there it's led by their mistrust in government institutions. And this is something, for, for instance, that we see a lot um, on the left of the political spectrum where people are opposite COVID vaccines and uh, lockdowns and measures in general, not because they think that the vaccine is dangerous, but because they feel like the government is trying to enforce something unlawful on them. Mm -hmm. And so from the moment you have this distrust in the institutions, this is kind of like an open door to a lot of things. And like pro-Russian narratives are those. Because when you're in this paradox where you think that the media and the government is lying to you, then it's about COVID, okay. But then if the media began talking about a war, are you going to believe that it's a war? And who is behind the war, most of it, mostly? Because in the case of the Russian, Ukraine, like the Russian war in Ukraine, well, Russia is invading Ukraine and waging, uh, waging a war upon the country. But if you hear that from a media that you don't trust, there is a chance that you are going to question yourself on, since the media is lying, who is really behind this war? And this is something we see a lot as well in the way that, okay, if my government and my media support Ukraine, it means that I should support the other side. So you're saying that the... Oh, sorry. No, because I don't trust them. So I'm going to believe the opposite of yeah. their saying. No, that makes sense. So you're saying that this, this whole pivot uh, from COVID to the, the war, not trusting the main narrative that uh, Western media is, uh, is pushing, which is the, that uh, Russia is waging war in Ukraine. You're saying they're not believing that because that's now the main focus point of media. It's like before it was COVID because obviously it's such a huge thing. Um, and now everybody's talking about Ukraine, so they're going to 
take the, the counterfeit, let's say, and say, oh, actually, everything you're saying is false and I'm right. Yeah, at least at Graphica, we see that in the monitoring that we're doing on this. There is this narrative going on that uh, basically the war in Ukraine is the new COVID. Because this is something that, according to them, is used and instrumentalized by the governments to exert, like, exert pressure on their populations and control them. All right. Interesting. And now for something completely different. Uh, Tell me. Tell me. Yeah. So I know if you can talk about that or if you have anything to say about that, but I just thought I would throw that question in there because um, French presidential elections are right around the corner as uh, as we speak. Uh, as you said, second week of April, at the end of the week, there is a first term. Yep. So what is there anything uh, you want to tell us about around uh, influence operation targeting friends or that have targeted friends in the past uh, who are the presumed authors these kind of things uh, of course um well i think like the main risk for the election is gonna be the same as for 2017 like we still have this precedent of 2017 where the party the like emmanuel macron's party en marche has been uh, targeted by a hack and leak and yeah. it's i think it's email servers were leaked like three days before the first uh, i think it was the first or the second i don't remember it's so far away <laughs> anyway the emails were leaked uh so obviously there is this risk as well mm -hmm. because humans are never trustworthy especially when it comes to security <laughs> and i include myself in it like just everybody um I mean, thank god as well because we would both be out of a job if it was uh, if it was yeah, the case, so. I guess. so obviously there is like this um fear and pot potentiality of a hack and leak or something in the same vibe let's say yeah. uh obviously like this was uh suspected to be a russian operation in 2017 so we've been talking a lot a lot sorry about um Russian interference in the US uh, in the French election. And I was going to talk about the US because this is a topic that we've seen as well during the midterms uh, in 2018 in the US, but also last year in the German elections. Like everybody was expecting something to happen. Mm -hmm. And nothing happened on this, yeah. nothing really happened on this um, level. And the, the question is like, why? And Instead, like, where should we look at? And my take on this is that right now, at least at Grafica, we're not seeing any Russian activity around the French election. Um, however, uh, we see a lot of domestic and uh, threats coming from the inside, be it like disinformation campaigns against candidates or um, harassment campaigns about parties and parties official like the last one i can think about is one that was led by uh account supporting eric zemmour against uh, valérie pécresse under the hashtags uh islamodroitism uh islamabad and um, karam enish uh, on twitter which was basically say, um, saying that um Valérie Pécresse and uh, two high officials of the, Republic uh, of the Republicans were secretly um, Islamist supporters. And this gained actually a lot of traction because what's, what's really interesting to watch right now is that we're seeing new ways of doing operations on social media. And this is especially led by how uh, the following of Eric Zemmour has built itself online with like you know, high officials and then they have like all their um, small uh, soldiers that are gonna retweet stuff and so on, accounts that are creating and amplifying. This, this is extremely interesting and this is extremely powerful. And this is also the reason why so many hashtags they've been promoting has been uh, have been ending up in uh, Twitter trends in France because they're extremely good at astroturfing. And this is something we've seen as well uh, among the COVID skeptic communities where one account, which I'm not going to name, um, was basically like launching new hashtags on a daily basis. Like 
And the community is so tightly uh, held knit. together. Yeah, knit together that uh, if someone is like, okay, I need to amplify this account, it's going to happen. And this is why so many COVID skeptic hashtags and prosemore hashtags, for instance, ended up in Twitter trends because their like their strategy is incredibly good in order to amplify and to understand basically the magic be behind the Twitter trend algorithm. And yeah, but otherwise, like we haven't really, as I said, like we haven't seen any foreign interference in the election yet. We'll see how it goes between the first and the second um, vote. But um, yeah, so far, all we see is um, coming from the inside. OK, OK. Well, that's very interesting. Thank you. I just uh, wanted your take on that since uh, I'm French and I uh, <laughs> wanted to know a little bit more from a specialist. OK. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to say, this is just something that we've seen as well. Um, for the German election, where all the campaigns and all the disinformation campaigns we've seen were organized uh, by national communities and not by foreign actors. In some cases, in Germany in 20, uh, 2021, it's been amplified by the Russian state media, so RTN Sputnik when it was still running. This has yeah. been the case, for instance, uh, with all the campaigns that have been targeting uh, the green candidate for the chancellery. Um, Annalena Baerbock. Uh, this has been amplified over and over again by Sputnik and uh, RT, but the base of the disinformation was not coming from them. It was coming from far-right communities inside the country. Okay, that's interesting too. And is there any is there any fears that uh, foreign agents or people with Bad intentions are going to take controls, rise in the ranks of these uh, online communities, be it anti-vax, be it uh, COVID deniers, uh, or ultra-right-wing uh, foot soldiers, and kind of steer them in uh, a direction that would be bad for the whole country? Mm, it's a difficult question, and my take is that it would be extremely difficult because we're talking about movements that are highly decentralized. Yeah. It's not like in Germany, even in Germany, I don't think it would have worked. But if you look at the COVID skeptic movement in France and compare it with the movement in Germany, in Germany, it actually managed to fuse into something that is called Quedenken, which is like lateral thinking in German. Mm -hmm. And this is, it has regional chapters and it organizes protests and so on and so forth. We don't have oh. that in France. So it's even more difficult to influence those communities because Yes, they're influencers, but those influencers are extremely well known now, nowadays, like be, be the anti-vax doctors or politicians such as uh, Nicolas Dupont-Aignan, uh, François Asselineau or Florent Philippot. Um, so they have like already their leaders. So I think leaders, sorry. So I think it would be extremely complicated for actual agents, like foreign agents to penetrate those movements and try to move them on the side, like towards more extremist content. And this is also true with extremist, commun uh, extremist communities because those, especially since the dissolution of Bastion Social and uh, Generation Identitaire, hmm. we're seeing the groups so come I'm back. Going to make a little, uh, no, I'm just going to disclose what are Bastion Social and Generation Identitaire before we go yeah. on. For, uh, our non-French listeners, Génération uh, Identitaire was a uh, right-wing organization that was uh, classified as a hate group, if I'm not mistaken. And after pulling a little stunt at a what was it a protest, it was actually dissolved by uh, the French state. Mm -hmm. So yeah, both are basically like far violent far-right communities that have been involved in several protests, uh, sometimes violent uh, acts against uh, migrants and so on and so forth. And also for the ones who know what I'm talking about, Bastion Social uh, was born from the GUD, so a French far-right university organization. Basically, those orgs don't exist anymore like on paper, but they 
it's really interesting because now it's it kind of follows like a trend that we're seeing mostly uh, among anarchist groups, which is that you don't have like a national organization. It's going to be very small autonomous groups, uh, usually at a regional, even like a city level. Yeah. They're going to operate one by one, like independently from one another. And however, they're going to just um, unite for protests or for actions and stuff like this. And also we saw on social media that they communicate a lot with one another, but they remain mostly like independent from one, one another. Like one example of those uh, groups, uh, which is like the hairs of the good is the Zouaf Paris, which has been dissolved as well, like mm. beginning of the year, if I'm not mistaken. And it would be extremely difficult as well to penetrate those groups because they're extremely small and most of the time they're some of them are neo-fascists some of them are identitarian and it let it kind of leaves very little space for let's say non-nationals okay <laughs> yeah that makes sense i suppose okay well that's a lot of information uh, a lot of very interesting information thank you uh, I think I've run out of questions to ask you. Uh, is there anything you wanted to mention? Um, any shout out you wanted to give? To my team. <laughs> okay. no, I'm super lucky. I have an incredible team with a lot of knowledge on it and incredible people. And also to Kevin Limonier for uh, dragging me to, towards OSINT without knowing what it was at the time, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was uh, really interesting. Thank you. All right, no, pleasure to have you. Hopefully you'll come back. Well, <laughs> thank you for coming here, Leah. Thank you. And that's going to be the end of our episode. Thank you, folks.